Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a fun-filled episode for you guys. Jake has no idea what's going on. No, you you prepped this entire episode. And I actually made you leave for for a couple of phone calls. This is (laughs) Chris's top 10 or top 9, I don't remember, I can't count, enthusiast cars of the 90s. Oh, I like this. Yeah, so we're going to get into the top nine or ten. I didn't actually count. I, <laughs> so if there's only nine, you I'm know sorry. What? We should count down from ten, and if and there's we'll nine, go. just leave everyone hanging. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Um, but before we get into that, what have we got? Yeah, we need to mention our sponsor, Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with industry-leading customer service. They've also just launched the world-class hand tool line to the U.S. market, and these are German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. So to check everything out, head over to worthusa.com and check out all their awesome products. All right. So well, before we get into the top 10, nine, top nine slash 10 uh, cars of the 90s. 9.5. 9.5. Do you think we should tell everybody that we cut my car? I Yeah, if you follow Instagram at all, you're probably aware that we cut up the entire front portion of Chris's 911. It is gone. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to my buddy about this because he was following along on Instagram. And he's like, wow, that must have been really, you know, like nerve wracking and everything no. else. And I go, hey, it was fine for me. It wasn't yeah. my freaking car. I was fine. And then all of a sudden I was watching you cut something and I go, Jake Solberg is cutting my $60,000 car right now. Yeah. And I was kind of just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Because you were really going for it. I'm, like, yeah. always a little slower, a little more methodical. But, hey, we got it all cut out, and it was way, way, way worse. worse than I could have ever imagined. The front pan is completely rusted out. Yeah. Filled, so it's, filled with expanding foam. Right, and which, is, the, which is what you do. So people do that so they can... So they can make houses for mice in the future. Yeah, I don't know why people do that. People do it all the time to fill in rust holes to keep water from going out. But all it does is keep water in. Right. And soaks up. It just, you see it all the time in Minnesota, you know, on rocker panels and stuff like that. Well, a lot of people do it to fill in a rust hole and And then then put Bondo over it. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'll still, they'll support the Bondo. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. And I couldn't believe all the MIG wire. (laughs) <laughs> just it was like a porcupine in one hole it was i don't understand how you even do that four or five three inch sections of mig wire that had somehow gotten through and the guy's like oh well i guess i better stop but spooling it was, it, i couldn't believe how many different yeah it was it was ugly it was very ugly but now everything is sorted out and i found out that the the passenger side fender which i thought somebody had um MIG welded, a little gone a little overboard. Right. It looked like this guy just seam welded everything. And the welds looked good. Yes, they did. And I'm like, well, there's no way this guy over here is the same guy that welded <laughs> right. the other side. <laughs> Lo and behold, I get a phone call because I was like, yeah, I don't know on, on Instagram or whatever. I'm like, oh, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know if I need to grind these welds off. 30 seconds after I po- later after I posted, I get a phone call. Do not <laughs> do anything with those welds. Those that is factory. factory. That's your reference point. Yes. Do not touch any of that. Which is very good. Which is very good. So that gives me a reference point of what I thought was going to happen is going to happen, which means starting on that passenger side and working my way backwards. Yes. So I got my uh, two more pieces in the mail today, which is the little corner fender supports. Sure. Where the fender bolts on. And I also got my new hood uh, release cable tube. 
Oh, right, because we cut that apart. Because we cut that apart. <laughs> well, the other it's all, it was all it was like somebody threw spaghetti at the wall, and whatever shape it had, that's what they installed yeah, they in the just, car. Yeah, put it, was it always, there. It was always a two-handed thing. Oh, it was that stiff. It was stiff, and I've already ripped the button off once, and the buttons are $75, or the little pole. <laughs> the little plastic pole. stupid like, things. Come on, guys. So I JB welded it back on there. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to cut the rod up near the gas tank and then install this one there. That way I don't have to go into it because it goes through the car. Yeah. I don't want to mess with any of that. So I'm going to kind of... Are you going to have to try to weld it? No, I'm just... Why? It doesn't need to be watertight. I'll just get it really, really close and just tack it right there. Okay. There might be like sense. a little little tiny gap there, yeah. but that's, that's not going to so be the end of the world. knowing how terrible and Swiss cheese and full of rust that whole front section was, do you feel validated and kind of like vindicated that you're doing all this work? Yes. Because 100%. I had a couple people ask me, I was like, his car drives fine. Why is he spending so much money in doing all here's the, this work? Here's the question. Does it drive fine? Because <laughs> you it? don't you don't know. This is I don't I mean I've driven other yeah. uh, air cooled nine elevens and stuff, and I always felt that they felt a little more dense than mine. A little stiffer, <laughs> yeah, more torsional rigidity. Um, the only other early nine eleven I've driven, I think, is yours. I've driven a bunch of SCs. Well, and well stuff mine like isn't that. anything yeah, to go by. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not a good reference point. But um now it's gonna be basically fitment. And I bought a little sure. angle gauge, a digital angle gauge. Yeah. And I have the car level. Okay. So I'm going to be able to, what? Are you sure? How are you, how, what are you leveling it to? Uh, the strut bar plus the actual chassis of the car it says zero when I move it around to a bunch of different places that yeah, I, okay. that I presume I just are flat. I want to make sure you're not like, ah, I put it on the floor and the floor says it's level. No, no. I, I okay. went to a different bunch of different spots. Yeah. So I've got the car level left to right, which yep. is what I need. I don't care about up and down. It doesn't really like the front. The back does not need to be level with the front because right. I'm just basically using side to side reference. Yeah. So if it measures the same off the floor on one side, it's going to measure the same off the floor on the other side or it should. Yes, left to it right. should. Just the verticalness of the left and right is what do I really, really care really about. you have a really long straight edge? I do not. Okay, let me get you my long, like, five or six foot straight edge. Just make sure your concrete is actually straight. Or use the straight edge to go off of instead of the concrete. Well, I did put the digital level on the ground, and that's level. Yeah, the two inches that you measured. Well... This isn't brain surgery here. This is going to be. We're th this is basically going to be a sculpture at some point anyway. Yeah, I suppose um, the, the slab isn't cracked. There's no damage to my concrete slab at my house. Okay. It's, it should be good. And I nothing rolls away when it falls on the floor. Well, there you go. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get right on number ten so on Chris's list of the top ten slash nine driving cars. Or how did you define let me, this? Let me give you some criteria. All right. Okay, they must be less than seventy five thousand dollars. Okay, in, in the nineties. Yeah. So these. Otherwise, just obscure supercars. Well, McLaren F1 and the Ferrari. This. Oh, the just, W8 Vector, Chris. Why isn't the Vector on you us? You could go crazy, right? So we wanted to keep it somewhat reasonable. So $75,000 and $90 must be sold in North America. Okay. So Canada or right. the United States, because otherwise it just gets really hard. Right. It, once you get into the European and Japanese stuff that we didn't get, it's a rabbit hole. We could All do, the weird, you know, like, we should do an episode of the best cars we never got. Sure. So I'll do I'm something sure like that. I'm sure a lot of GTRs on that list. Yeah, I was looking at GTRs. I'm like, oh, oh no, no, can't we do can't, can't do those. So number 10. Yes. And this is these are driver's cars, oh, performance okay. so, cars. What are the criteria? They're cars that kind of represent the 90s. They don't have to be driver's cars. Okay. They don't have to be fast. Now, they either have to represent. Does rank well on the Overcrest Smiles Per Mile ranking? Is I that think, what we're going by? I think all of them, I think all of them would. Okay. I think all of them would make you smile if you were driving them. All right. But a so, lot of them represents a, a period in the company's history. A lot of them were benchmarks for a culture. So you could call these definitive. I would think so. All I right. would think so. The first car is a car that made 
muscle cars cool again in my mind. And I remember getting into one of these cars and grabbing the shifter and go, wow, this shifter is shaped exactly like the car that it is, (laughs) which is a 1994 Mustang Cobra SVT. So you're making a joke that the styling was rounded on those era Mustangs. Have you held a, a Cobra shifter before? Yeah. They, it is the head of a Cobra. Oh, the shifter you, itself. That's not factory. Oh, it's not? So the one I drove no. when I valeted, well, that's not a factory option? No. Did it have it stupid little LED lights that lit up in the no, eyeballs, it, too? No, no it didn't. It's, <laughs> it, was, it seemed factory. It was really, really nice. It was okay. leather stitched. I mean, it was a really nice. Maybe wrong, but I drove a 97 Cobra for a while, and it just had the regular shift knob that my 95 Mustang had. So this wasn't crazy power. I think this thing only made 200. Three- and- 240 I want to say horsepower. 300. No, was, well, this one was 240. I don't know what okay. they did later on. Did they? Yeah, maybe probably up the power. But I just, I really like these cars. I think it was, it was the first modern Mustang, as you think. So you had all that Fox Buddy stuff, all that Square stuff, and then you go to the round Mustangs. And most the people, SN95 chassis. Most people do not like these. Correct. But I think this was a cool car in the 90s. It represented Ford fairly well. Mm-hmm. And performance-wise, you can do some pretty serious stuff. Yeah, with so this these. was the 5 liter. As long as you weren't posing with a V6. Right, which With I the was. dual outlet exhaust. Well, it was 16-year-old Jake. Come it on. Was, yeah. Well, you know, we, can, we can judge. We judge it who you are. It sounded really good. I'm sure it did when you yeah. were losing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you used to drive around. You could look at him and go, well, that guy, that's a V6. Because right. a lot of guys would pull the badges off. So you right. couldn't know. One tailpipe was definitely oh, a yeah. V6. Giveaway. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mine was, you had the rumble. Um, so these engines were actually handmade by one employee at Ford Motor Company. Did you know that? I did they not. They sign the top of the intake manifold. With what? A Sharpie? I don't know. It's or it's like the plaque they print with his signature. Oh, okay. I, okay. I think it was actually a label that they did sign with a pen or something. So they wanted to be like Mercedes then. Right, exactly. Hand built. Um, the other cool thing was the paint. Do you know about the special paint colors to these? No, I do not. Please you educate do me. Do not? I don't know. I think it was ninety-four even that they had <coughs> the chameleon paint job. You need to look this up. Everyone needs to look this up. This looks like who was it in the 90s that came out with all the crazy like candy color house of color shifting. Yeah. House of color. That's basically what this car was. That is a factory factory color. Wow. Well, that started. I almost want to pull it off the list now because that started a (laughs) move. That started a movement that nobody can appreciate. No, but being a factory color, it's pretty cool. Yeah. If you could do something wild. I just I really like the the SVT program. Mm -hmm. I think the SVT program was really, really good for Ford. I think the Cobra stuff um, was cool. And anyway, number 10 on the list. Agreed. Mustang Cobra. Good stuff. All right. Number nine. Uh, the FD Mazda RX-7. Yes. Now, this is a really, really complicated engine and a complicated turbo system. It has a sequential turbo system. Yes. And I didn't really understand how it works. So I called up my buddy Logan, who actually owns one of these. And he's okay. an engineer, super smart guy. So I'm going to play you my interview with Logan, who's going to talk about the RX-7. Hello. Hey, Logan, how's it going, Logan, how's it going, going man? pretty good. How about yourself? Is it, I'm doing well. It's great to talk to you. I'm hoping you can... Do you still have your uh, RX-7? I do indeed. It's uh, currently sleeping under a car- cover in my garage, sadly. As as it should be in, in the weather up here in Minnesota. I wanted to... This car is one of the cars on my list for best 90s cars of all time. Oh, it belongs there. I like And this. I would think that you would agree that that's probably true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but one thing I kind of want uh, someone that's a little more into the cars to explain to me 
is the sequential twin turbocharging system in these cars, which at the time was kind of revolutionary and kind of cool. Can you explain to me how that works with the with the 13B engine? Yeah, absolutely. So when Mazda started turbocharging the 12A in the original car, uh, that would have been the 1978 one that looks sort of like the 914 Porsche a little bit. Um, sure. They were able to get a little more horsepower out of it, and they really liked it. But when they upped the, the uh, size of the engines to 1.3 liters, and they looked at them in the second generation of the car, they were able to get about a 20, 35 horsepower boost out of it, and it was a lot of fun. But they needed to get away from all of that turbo leg that they were getting. And that was something that the Japanese engineers got obsessed with when they were designing the new car, along with making it lighter. So basically how it works is they they developed a system where they've got, uh, I think it was Hayatachi that originally designed it. And there were two turbos, one slightly larger than the other. And they built it in a way so that the first one would spool up just like a normal system with the compression from the exhaust. And once it would get going, it would power the car from about 2,000 all the way up to four to 5,000 RPM. But what was special sure. about it was between 4,000 and 5,000, it started bleeding its air off onto the second turbo scroll and spooling it up so there wouldn't be any lag. And then once you, yeah. So was, was there, could can you tell when you're driving it that this is happening? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you put a boost gauge on one of these cars, <laughs> not the factory one, but any any reasonable aftermarket boost gauge, you'll see this dip. Um, so the cars do what's called a 10-7-10 configuration. So you should get about 10 pounds of boost all the way up to 4,000. Then you should uh, fall off to about seven, between four to 5,000. And then the thing hits like a hammer. It just comes on really strong. It jumps back up to 10. And you can tell like the scrolls don't look a lot different in size, but it's a lot more flow. And then the car the car really wakes up and you're just, you're breaking laws in no time. Um, so how are you how are you able to mitigate the throttle or model, modulate the throttle in aggressive driving situations with that boost coming on and changing it like that? If you're in a corner and it's doing some weird stuff, is it hard to drive? Is there oversteer issues and stuff like oh, that? Absolutely. Um, so at Brainerd International Raceway, which is in just a couple hours north of uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota here, I've spun that car out maybe four or five times. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's not that different than lifting off in a 911, right? It's got a, it's got that right. zone. It just startles yeah. you. Um, yeah. So I think that the really really good drivers they're watching their RPMs and they're fluttering their throttle just a touch as they pass through that range to try to keep that off, or they're they're if they're in a corner they're ready to counter steer right when that happens. And I think that's how great drivers really use that car to the utmost with that happening. So is there anything else that makes the FD special in your mind? I think when I first bought my FD um, and I took it for a drive, I was really impressed at how well it brakes and how visceral the response is because there's no, you know, there's no thrust input on the front wheels. You can feel everything that car is doing. Um, and the way that it's so, uh, every time you do the same thing with it, it gives you the same response back. So I think my example would be, if I took my, I used to have a Subaru WRX STI. If I would take that up to the track, and if you'd use that car, every time you entered a braking zone and hit the brake, the car would do what it should do, but you didn't know which wheel was going to release first when you let off. None of that, none sure. of that was for sure with the STI. 
With the RX-7, it does the same thing every time. And it's really light and gentle when it flicks around. You know, it's very nimble. It's it's like a Miata, but with way too much horsepower so you can get in trouble. <laughs> Why do you think Mazda, because when you look at the rotary stuff that they did later, it's kind of, in comparison, I would say, pedestrian, right? Why do you think Mazda went away from such a such a great car and a great system and completely left that behind after the FD? Well, you know, my personal opinion is because they they got themselves into a position where they probably couldn't handle the R&D anymore on making a beautiful car. I mean, they stopped selling them in North America in 95 because they needed to conform to the OBD2 scanner situation that came out for 1996. That's what killed the car in the United States, along with ballooning prices and terrible sales. I don't know if they sold a hundred some the final year. Um, so it commercially, it didn't seem viable. I mean, when you look at the RX-8, right, they built a people pleaser. It had four doors. It was supposed to be this right. car anyone could drive. And they, they took the turbo out of it and they overstressed the engine, you know, a different way with basically timing control with where they put the exhaust and the intake on the on the center plates but i don't know why why mazda felt they couldn't get get further with it but i think they just they must have ran into the roadblocks of gas mileage and emissions and and conforming to american standards i mean they kept developing the car till what 2002 in japan and right you know if i if i could give my right arm i'd probably try to buy a you know a real spirit type r those cars looked amazing um yeah, there's a lot of good iterations of the RX-7, I think, for sure. Yeah, the, I think the one that always sticks in my head is a, a yellow Bathurst edition from Australia that those guys down under kept having for years and years. Those things are, it's got a place in my head as a kid anyways. Well, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you giving us some uh, some heads up on the on the FD. I'm certainly not an expert, and I wanted to talk to someone that actually is, owns one and, and, and has been driving. Yeah, so I appreciate absolutely. It. Chris, have a good one. All right, take Goodbye. care, man. Bye-bye. You know what was funny is when he goes, yeah, they upped the displacement to 1.3. <laughs> wow, it's massive. So one thing he didn't mention about these cars, neither of you did, is the styling. Yes. Arguably are. the best car, the car is aged better, I think, than any other style out there. It really, that shape is timeless. When you think of Japanese cars from the 90s, everybody goes to the Supra over and over and over again. But that car is ugly. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's ugly. It has no body lines. It looks like melting silly putty with a spoiler on it. <laughs> they just aren't good looking cars. Great engine, but not good looking. And like you said, the RX-7 is beautiful. Agreed. The only problem with this car is they sound awful. <laughs> Well, not if you like two cycle snowmobiles. It's it's like having a. <laughs> that's it. I mean, it's that like, is it. it. It's like having a bicycle card in your wheel of your bike, and you're going a hundred <laughs> miles an hour. That's what these things sound like. All right, so um, you've been making a lot of sounds. I don't want you to. I need you to resist what? on this next car and making the sound that this oh, car come makes. Come on. So as a wait, nine, wait, 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 can can I can I make the noise before you say it? No, I want to I want to predict it. Okay, go ahead. You are correct. And as a '90s kid, I grew up seeing <laughs> a lot of uh, Mark threes. Yeah, and there's only one. That's so this worth is the Volkswagen GTI. Volkswagen that generation GTI is called the Mark three R 
six. Yes. And I grew up seeing these constantly. They were all over the place. They had silver gauges. And I, for some reason, I really loved the silver gauges that were on yeah. those. They were a little bit different. And uh, I guess the, uh, the the Jetta GT, I guess, got the silver gauges too. But, okay. But you knew those never had the VR6. Remember they, the Trek edition? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We yeah. had all kinds of different editions, especially if you were in England. There was even a Pink Floyd edition. There's a million different editions Weird. that come with a million different iterations. Really, really kind of a, it's a very malaise car. Like if you think of '90s malaise, okay. the interior styling, the, interior, the exterior looks okay. The I mean, inter- it is the, just... in- the interior is not very good unless you got leather, because then you yeah. wouldn't get the stupid designs that were on the seats, which yeah. are very, very '90s. I don't really like it. the uh, the da- The dash is kind of like not a great material. It's square. Yeah, it's just not very good. But the engine in these cars, so good. It's amazing. It is one of the best sounding engines of all time. So to better explain a little bit of this, I called up my buddy Chad Erickson, who's a longtime friend of mine. He's the owner of SCI Performance, which is a Volkswagen shop that's been in been around. Between thirty and forty years, I over think forty years. It's, yeah, they've been around forever. So here's, I gave up, uh, gave Chad a call. Here you go, Chad. Thanks for calling into the podcast, man. I really appreciate having you on. No, yeah, no problem, no problem. I, I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to than uh, a guy that's been working on Volkswagens for decades now. At this point, um, yeah, thank, thank you for that. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate being the oldest guy in the room. That's good. <laughs> so we have. In the 90s, we had two GTIs. We had the 8-valve GTI, and then we had the 12-valve VR6 GTI. And they have a difference of, I think, 60 horsepower. I think it was 115 horsepower and 172 horsepower. Why yeah. do you think Volkswagen decided to just make a, such a huge breadth of uh, of engines in the same car? Because I don't, you don't really don't see that very much. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, to me, the, uh, the biggest mistake, not mistake maybe, but is... I think that the two liter 16 valve should have just been the the baseline motor for pretty much every Volkswagen back then instead of that two liter. Uh, but you know, the, the VR six, I think was, a um, was, it was, it was made so much, so much horsepower, such a small package and the way they could fit it into all their cars. I think it really worked out well for them in that sense. And I, they just decided to start putting it in everything. Well, how long did that motor last? I mean, they had it in, into the 2000s, right? When did that motor finally yeah. quit being made? Well, you know, in, in a 12 valve, it might have uh, stopped in like 2001, but I think that uh, 2.8 was like 2000, maybe five or six, if I remember right. And then it was a 3.2 and then a 3.6. Yeah, my, my 3.6 is in my wife's Atlas, and I, I love it. It's a it's a great motor, but the again, the Atlas, the 3.6 is a great motor, all kinds of power, but in an Atlas, it's it would be awesome to have another 50 horsepower. <laughs> right. So, it's such a big car. So back in the, back in the mid nineties, late nineties, when you had guys that were tuning their you know, eight valves and turning their 12 valves, did you ever go to the guys that had eight valves and you're just like, dude, you should have just bought a VR six. Uh, well, actually no. Well, sometimes I guess, because it, when they would get super serious, you know, like supercharger kits or something like that. But for the most part, the VR six me, it was it, the cost was so much more. That, that guys could get themselves into like a Mark III, uh, you know, Golf Sport, you know, 12, uh, eight valve uh, ABA car for, you know, many thousands of dollars less than what the VR6 was. So, you know, as far as getting cars that guys could get and then they would get exhaust and cam and, and uh, chip and intake, whatever, they would make a decent power, maybe 15, 20 more than stock at the time. Sure. And, um, 
but it would still be many thousands less than what the VR6 would cost, you know. Sure. There was it, quite it, the premium on those, huh? Yeah, it wasn't just the, you know, it was the massive brakes and, and uh, you know, huge brakes. And good Lord, some of those old golf sports and golfs had drum brakes, for goodness sakes, versus right. VR6, which were just all four corners and 11-inch brakes in the front. And, you know, factory 15-inch wheels or BBSs and leather interior most of the time. So they were... Um, it was a very high line car in in, uh, in, in uh, contrast to like the Sport, which was basically just a, a two liter Golf with 110 horsepower, 115 or whatever it was. Sure. So when we talk about a GTI VR6 and you look at the, the engine configuration, the way it's laid out, it's not a real V6, right? Well, it's technically it's a V6 with a, with, a, with one cylinder head. So it's a 15 degree angle V6 versus like a 45, like pretty much every other car that's out there, you know. The, the 15 degree angle is where it gets its um, compactness. You know, it makes it so. That's what makes it so skinny and skinny enough to fit in the front end of a of a Volkswagen uh, sideways and not uh, or you know transversely and not um, longitudinal. Not, not, yeah. Not, yeah, not longitudinally. Sorry, I'm I'm passing the semi here. So, so. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, so. Is this engine reliable? Is this something that you can go and you can get a, like a 97 GTI VR6 and just be all set? Or is there issues with these engines at this point? Uh, honestly, not like the not like the issues that the new stuff has. I mean, the old ones, I would call them bulletproof in, in a sense because they are, um, as long as the timing chains are cared for, you know, the, the greatest thing they're going to have problem-wise is uh, is like water pump failures or something like that. You know, the, the, the new ones, it's like, uh, did the fuel pump eat itself and did the you know, it, it's, is, the, are the, is the oil pump going to lock up? And are the cam chains stretching? And, you know, where the old ones were uh, uh, a lot sim- a lot, uh, a lot simpler. And um, I honestly, I think they make the, the some of the best sounds with a, just a just a Canon intake or a Canon filter on a on a VR6 is some of the best sounds of any motor, I think. I think it is, too. I think it's uh, short of... Some crazy V8s and some flat sixes and some crazy stuff. It is one of the best sounding engines of all time. It's too bad once you get to the 24 valve, that noise almost goes away completely for some reason. Yeah, they're they're well, yeah, they've they've muffled them quite a bit. But yeah, the the um, the intake and the new, you know, the new variable, you know, intake manifold stuff, all that stuff kind of muffles it down. The big plastic intake manifolds, and you know, I don't know. It's uh, the old VR6 stuff, especially when we were doing like uh, the the uh, Volkswagen Motorsport intakes or the Schultz Schrick intakes, those things were just awesome. They would uh, they would rev the you know with a set of cams they would rev all all day long and uh, and make great power. Do you see these things in the shop anymore? Uh no no good lord no Mark uh, the last one we had was a turbocharged one and that was actually one that I bought that the guy had been sitting for you know number of years and didn't want to fix it, but uh, the the Mark three. Mark threes are tough. I mean, I see some Mark fours that still come in, and um, but not the not, none of the Mark three stuff at all. Well, I appreciate your insight, man. And thanks for uh, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, no problem. All right, take care of yourself. Yep. All bye. right, bye bye. I I love me some Mark three VR six. I do too. I forgot about all like the Shrick intake manifold and the cams and all that stuff. You had to throw. A, so he he said to get a, an eight valve up to the the specs of a 12 valve or not even or at least to attempt sure your chip 
cam exhaust intake and he's like oh yeah 15 or 20 horsepower at that point (laughs) you're at the amount of horsepower that you would have if you just swapped a 16 valve into the engine yeah so what he said about just they should just put the 16 valve in there that makes absolutely true um and i think that they did and it was called an abf oh interesting in europe you could get a 16 valve i think it's an abf and it was a aba block with a 16 valve head yeah and i think i know that's the frankenstein got a lot of guys over here would do yep and that's uh, 140 150 horsepower or something like that now we're showing our volkswagen nerdiness yeah a little bit a little bit (laughs) okay but one thing we need to mention before we move along you know who drove a mark 3 vr6 jesse from fast and the furious chris That that was a two liter eight valve it was supposed to be a VR6, I thought. The car was a two-liter eight valve. I don't it was know. Supposed I don't to know be a what VR6. It, I don't know what it's quote supposed to be. Yeah, but no. I know that it was a two-liter eight valve. Pretty sure it was supposed to be a VR6. Yeah, well, that, you're not winning any races with a two-liter eight valve, so it better have been <laughs> better have been the VR6. And I know one of our listeners right now is sitting in his FedEx truck, just screaming at me. It's Mister David Monzingo, who is a fan. Huge fan of the two liter eight valve, so he probably actually he's, pro- <laughs> he's probably not listening anymore. He probably already turned Just the podcast turned us off. Turned All right, us. all right. So, so next on the list is the D two Audi S eight. Oh, which I th- from Ronin. It is from Ronin. We fame. talked about this on our uh, best movie cars of all time. We did, and these cars. This is one of the reasons why I put this on the list is because this car started the movement of having a flagship fast, um, big car. The luxury car, the big wheelbase. Okay. So uh, it has 335 horsepower out of a 4.2 liter V8, which in 96 was pretty good. Zero to 60 in 5.8 seconds with a top speed of 155 miles per hour. Yeah, I, I love and these things. Quattro. You still see them today. And because I think some of the panels on these things were aluminum, were they not? Oh, I bet you're right. So they don't, they that's don't why you always out. see like the the, wind, the mirrors, like the side view mirror covers will rust and stuff yeah. like that, but nothing but else nothing is else. Rust, <laughs> rusting because there's a lot of aluminum in these. Have you driven one of these? No, I haven't. They don't necessarily feel like they have 330 horsepower. Well, it's a big car. It is a big car, but there's something very, very regal about these. Oh, yeah. And I always, when I'm looking for cars that I want to buy, I always look at the S8s going, mm, do I want to do it? I don't know. But There's it's just, also a lot that can go wrong with a big, heavy, expensive That, that motor is notoriously reliable. Okay. It's actually more reliable than the regular V8 that's in those things, which I think also might be a 4.2. It is, But it's yeah. not the high-performance 4.2. I think one of them is a belt and one of them is a chain. I think, uh, yep. I think the, uh, the S, S8 one is a chain. That makes sense. Anyway, love those cars. Uh, not too much to say about it, but it deserves to be deserves to be on this list. If for nothing else than the movie Ronin. That's right. Number six. Okay. The Mazda Miata. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it better be on this list. It absolutely has to be on this list. Yes. This car inspired an entire generation to get out and drive their cars, go to spec races, autocross, and hoon their car very slowly. 1990, right? In 1989 to 1997. Yeah. Um, started out with a 1.6 uh, inline four with 114 yep. horsepower. But I, you know, I don't think people care that it doesn't have any no, horsepower. No, that's not the point of that it car. It doesn't seem to be the point. The thing is that this car was a real gamble when it came out. 
Really? There was nothing. The only other thing like this was I think Alpha had a, had like a spider. Well, yeah, this was basically going after the old British sports cars from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, but they weren't competing with anything. Alpha had a spider. That was really all that was on the sure. market at this time. So I, in my opinion, it was kind of a risk for Mazda to do this, yeah, to I put see this that. car out. But it inspired an entire, uh, I mean, the, the Mazda Miata still exists today, the MX-5. Of course. And so it inspired an entire lineage, definitely deserves to be on this list. Perfect 50-50 weight balance front and rear detachable subframes which at the time was pretty revolutionary yeah, to have high tech stuff uh, to have subframes in the rear right and this and the front so very very cool um has its own spec Miata racing series i mean this thing like you said has launched so much and that to me is why it's on the list not because of it has 50 50 weight balance not because right. it's fast or slow it's because of what it did for people being able to drive their car and cheaply yeah, you for know, sure. Another thing is these cars win limbo contests when they're slammed. <laughs> oh, we learned there that. There was a guy. Oh, my gosh. I yes. can't remember. I remember a, this. The, I was there. The, the white Mazda Miata. Yep. This guy drove this thing up from Chicago. Absolutely slammed. Had It basically didn't have a suspension. There was none. It was basically on the bump stops. Drove it all the way up from Chicago to the Euroworks show right. in his Miata to basically compete in the limbo contest. And he won. And he absolutely Do you remember won. what happened on his way up? No, there was like oh. a pebble in the road, like a small rock, yep. and it was so low that it hit the airbag sensor and blew out his airbags I and do cracked the windshield. I do remember that. Pretty great. Yeah. All right, number five on the list. I think we're at number five. Yeah, five we? sounds right. Uh, number five on the list. All right, one journalist writes. I have to preface oh, this. It would require a driver with a soul of stone not to glorify the abilities of this car. In this performance-minded age, when the excitement is excitement once reserved for sports cars has found its way into so many sedans, it is arguably the world's reigning performance sedan, the Mercedes 190E Cosworth 16 valve. Okay. So, how many cars stateside that you can think of have engines designed by the legendary Cosworth? I can think of two: this one and maybe three. I'm trying to think now. Lotus. Yep. Singer. Oh, yeah, I guess Singer does. Yeah. Hmm. This is a really cool engine. They got, uh, so basically what happened. I was going to say the Ford Contour SVT, but that was by Yamaha. Yeah, that's completely different. Uh, Yamaha that, was that thing still Yamaha? That, that yeah. thing? Because it was this Taurus show, which almost made the list. Yeah. It has the Yamaha engine as yeah. well. They're fast. Just Are they? To, you know, if I had a show, you know what I would do is I would take everything off and just make it a regular. Just I'm looking no. at it in terms of fast in the in the, yeah, in the dimension in the context of, of what that car was. Right, at right the now, time. it's going to be beat by a Camry. Right. So, anyways, so so basically, what happened was Mercedes. I don't know why they didn't just build their own engine. Right. But you got to keep in mind at this time, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, AMG, AMG, AMG wasn't. In-house. In-house at the time. Right. And even at this time, they when they did the 500E, they actually contracted Porsche to design That's the engine right. for that car. So they were kind of going out of house to get their performance stuff. And I'm wondering why they didn't go to AMG more. But they uh, they contracted to build a rally car or you know a race engine for them yep. in a four-cylinder configuration. They went for over 300 horsepower out of this, and they ended up getting it. The, the, the pedestrian... What, what is the displacement? Uh, two point five, or I think they had a two point three four as well. four cylinder. Yeah, there was two wow. different. There was two different ones. So the street car has one hundred eighty five horsepower, okay. which is right on par with the E thirty M three. I think hmm. the E thirty M three has one hundred ninety two horsepower. Okay. So it's it's kind of right in that in that range. And I'm not comparing this 
to the E30 M3, but I would much rather have this. The E30 M3 is so predictable and so, oh yes, of course, God's chariot, blah, blah, blah. This thing is a little more unique. It's a little... It is more unique. It's more unique. It's it's very special car. Um, they actually, the bo- you know they have a body kit on this car, right? They've got right. the wing, the they've got arrow. the body kit. That body kit reduced the drag coefficient by 0.32, and it was the lowest uh, coefficient of drag value on a four-door saloon at the time. So it was the most aerodynamic four-door car in existence at the time that it came out. Had a better steering box with a quicker ratio, had limited slip uh, rear differential, had SLS suspension on the rear, bigger sway bars, and very one very, very, very important person launched their career with one of these cars. This is a very, very special, unique driver. And I'm going to play you something, and I hope that this solidifies in your mind (laughs) that not all Mercedes are grandpa cars. Nicky Lauda's frightful crash at the Nürburgring led to its reconstruction. And in the inaugural saloon car race in 1984, Lauda drove a Mercedes 190 in the company of more than a dozen world champion racing drivers. And a young man recently arrived from Brazil called Ayrton Senna da Silva. In the lead now on lap three, Ayrton Senna, the 24-year-old Brazilian who took over Emerson Fittipaldi's car at the last moment. Alan Jones disappears into the pits. Reutemann and Lauda are fighting it out for second and third. I was very impressed. If you noticed, there was uh, a number of ex-world champions and uh, would-be world champions who were busy uh, cutting huge chunks of the circuit off, uh, whistling it through the uh, inside of the curbs, and generally straight-lining many parts of the circuit. Coming into the pits, asking Pirelli uh, if they would put new tyres on so that they could qualify, etc. And there was Senna, going round the circuit, clipping the curbs, just by the right amount, using all the road, but no more. And of course going faster than all of them. And it was after that that I dropped a little note and said, if you want to put your team in order and get the right driver, you should take Senna. And that was to Enzo Ferrari. So the Victor's Garland went to the youngest man in Formula One racing, the 24-year-old Brazilian Ayrton Senna de Silva. The runner-up was Niki Lada, the Austrian double world champion whose campaign for greater racing safety helped to create the new Nürburgring. The rest is history. Senna's unshakable resolve to be the best has sparked a bitter rivalry with Mansell and Prost that still goes on. So, I did not realize that Senna launched his career in one of these Mercedes 190Es. Do you take it all back? No. I would, no. <laughs> Come on! I this would, is as good as it gets! One of the most legendary <laughs> race car drivers of all time launches his career in a Mercedes 190. Yeah, you can have that. I will take the E30 At M3. At the Nürburgring. Now I will take the E30 M3. The 190 beat the E30 M3 repeatedly in the DTM circuit. That's fine. I still like it. Why? I don't know. What is it about it? I don't like how they look at all. Even in the, with the big wing and the... Yeah, it's just a body kit on it. It's what? a body kit on an old man car. What do you mean? What is a... What kind of people drive BMWs? 
Especially not in the late old, 80s, early men. 90s. Oh, come on. <laughs> Those cars were filled with accountants and lawyers and hedge fund managers at yeah. the time. Have no, you I... watched 80s and 90s, like late 80s, early 90s movies? Every <laughs> douchebag that's driving a BMW has his friend in a Mercedes. It's not old people, it's, it's young yuppies. If anything, it's a yuppie car. That doesn't sound any better than a grandpa car. <laughs> yes. And all on right. that note. Moving along. I just thought that was really interesting. That, that is cool. I didn't know that. So basically, they all get together at the Nürburgring to yeah. celebrate the new the new version of the track, right? Yeah. And <laughs> they have got Lauda and Probst and all these other guys that are out there yep. trying to compete and win. This young kid comes in and just schools them. them all. By it's, using the whole track by using the whole track and actually and the other guys they said that they were pulling in the pits to get different tires to try yeah. to qualify better nope this young kid just took this car and just shellacked all these guys very cool. and went on to be a legend for sure in the 198 that's why this car is on the list it did make a significant mark in the world all right next on the list is we've only got two left so this is number two i thought we were on like number five yeah i don't know it's whatever i don't know how many however many i i ended up with here all right this is the e36 m3 yeah so this car is the perfect juxtaposition of 90s malaise and simple brilliant performance so this car is extremely high horsepower for its displacement. Now we didn't get this engine here. We got uh, in Europe they had the 3.2 liter, which, which was the S54. No, I think it was a variation of the S52. Yes. I'm, I'm not a super like numbers guy with the motors. Um, so in European form, 3.2 liters made 316 horsepower. Okay, which is about almost 100 horsepower per liter. Right. Just to compare, at the same in the same era. The C36 AMG, which is the predecessor by C43 AMG, right. which honestly, I think I'd rather have it because it kind of has the legacy of the inline six and oh. the C-Class would be just, it seems like it would be, plus you can swap a manual transmission into it, which would be fun. Which but that thing cool. made 276 horsepower out of 3.6 liters. Oh, wow. And that was a motor tuned by AMG, which is 76 horsepower per liter. So the, the E36 M3 smoked it. Right. Which is probably why Mercedes went, uh, and then they put the, the e V8 in there. Yeah, they basically put a 4.3 liter E55 block in that car. Right. And they also made the the uh, C or the C55 AMG, which is pretty wild. Even bigger. Yeah. To help me bolster my claim that this car deserves to be so high on this list with okay. so many great cars on this list, I called up my buddy Alex Nelson, <laughs> who, uh, when I met him, he had an E36 M3. So as we're struggling with the numbers of the engine codes, I was like, you know who would know that is Alex. <laughs> so I'm glad you called him. Yeah, here we go. Hey, how's it going? What's up, buddy? How are you? Doing pretty good. Thanks Much for uh, letting me call you. Yeah, no problem. I'm always... So if if I had anybody recognize that anybody that would so know stuff away. about the E36 M3, it would be you. And I've chosen <laughs> as one of my best 90s cars of all time. And one of the reasons why I chose it is is the engine and the the exceptional horsepower per liter that that in, that, that that car made. But I'm hoping you can tell me why you think that car is so special and deserves to be on the list. Yeah. Um, well, I agree with you for putting it on the list. Uh, I've owned uh, just for. People who aren't familiar with with who I am, I've owned an E36 M3. I've owned, uh, I now currently have a M Coupe, um, and I've also had a 318 Ti. So I uh, have pretty good E36 experience. And to me, the reason why the M3 is special is probably because of attainability um, now, and also because of what it meant at the time that it was being made. And so, what did it mean at the time? So 
when it was being built, it was the first computer um, CAD-assisted development that BMW had. It was the first time that they'd really applied computers to making a car um, what they wanted. And I think there's a really big difference between using computers to fill the gap between the work that you want to do and the work that you don't want to do and using computers to assist in creating the exact vision that you have. And I think that when you look at cars today and you look at body lines and belt lines and tumble hone and stuff like that, you see a lot of stuff that has obviously been filled in by computer, especially like dashboards seem so foreign now, the shapes of them. And then you get an E36 and everything flows and everything kind of makes sense. Um, and it's all sort of the right size and relative to your, like the big vent that's on the right side of the dash that's like exactly the size of your hand and you can just tell someone ran their hands down that dashboard when forming it out of clay i think that that's really cool that you can still see that it's it's, it's an analog car but they were able to use computers to attain you know that awesome horsepower per liter and an engine that's pretty much maintenance free um so does the car live in this sweet spot of that where everything before that, if you look like uh, the E34 M5, it was hand-built, and then you have this car, which is kind of in the middle, and right. then everything and else after that kind of... I mean, the E39 M5 is a great car, but it's still very, very digital. Yeah, it's actually it's perfect that you brought up those two cars because the sedan... In 1994, the E36 sedan was introduced to fill the gap between the E28 M5 and the E39 M5. Um, and in fact, a lot of people don't realize, but the sedan is a very different car from the coupe. It's actually like it has different front windshield glass. It has different fenders. It's, it's different taillights. It's, it's a pretty different car. So um, they were they were trying to basically fill a gap they knew was going to be created, but they were using, I think, uh, or they were basing off the older school techniques. Uh, and it, it does totally place it in this sweet spot. And I know when, when I went from an E30 to an E36, I thought, oh, no, this is going to be like, you know, computers and OBD2, and this might be kind of a nightmare for me to work on by myself in a garage. It's really not, and most of the parts are dirt cheap. It's well, that's awesome, sweet. man. I Do you miss yours? Uh, it's honestly one of the cars I miss the most, I think, and it's also a bummer seeing the prices skyrocket to the point where, you know, my $7,000 E36 was now $15,000 E36, and I can't really just buy my way back into it as easy as I could have, uh, you know, five years ago, so. I think that's the same thing a lot of us are experiencing with the cars that we loved. They're all yeah. anything that's basically offers the experience that you're talking about. It's yeah. it's just it's not attainable anymore. Yeah, and to uh, to get back to that um, horsepower per liter thing, I know that a lot of people just you know in defense of the E36, a lot of people like to bash on the fact that the United States got kind of a uh, toned down version of the E36. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the S50 B32 that was in the Euro car is not necessarily known for being a very good engine. It's a fast engine. It makes a lot of power. It sounds great, but they're pretty unreliable. Um, and they also have, they just consume a lot of things. Like they have rod bearing issues as well. So um, I, I don't think enough people realize that the United States spec cars that had kind of more of a hopped up M52 um, are dead nuts reliable because of that. They're, it's just like buying a car with, some light upgrades that, you know, have been tested over and over and over again by an OE and manufacturer instead of this motorsport division trying to make their own bespoke thing. So And the all, and the suspension's different too, like the they have this this thing called correct. the X brace on the M threes too. What is that? Yeah, so the X brace, I have it on my M coupe as well. There are pickup points in the front of the subframe and two pickup points in the beginning of the bulkhead coming off the firewall that goes down to the floor. Um, and the X brace joins the subframe 
to the firewall. So that way you don't have any sort of, um, you know, disparity in the location between your subframe and the, and the, which is, you know, if you look at like E46s, E46M3s, they have tons of subframe issues. I was just watching a video on one. I ripped the subframe mount out and E36s don't have those issues as much. Um, so I think that again, just kind of goes to show computer, you know, aided design versus computer supplemented design. The x brace also protects your oil pan. So if you're trying to go 10 out of 10, <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> well, that sounds, I mean, that's a really a cool point that uh, put the car in that, in that sweet spot. I think that's a good reason to have it on the list. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate Take care it. of yourself. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay. Next on the list of, I'm not sure how many cars are on this list, <laughs> is the early 90s E34 M5. Okay. So this is probably my favorite sedan of all time. And if I could have any sedan, it would be this one. I mean, everybody would say, oh, you want an AMG, right? I'm like, no, this car is fantastic. And I called one of our close friends who's owned one of these and as our resident E34 M5 expert, and I got him on the line. It is Mr. The One and Only Joel Fetter. All right. Here we go. Hello? Mr. Fetter, how's it going, man? Mr. Clewell, is this the Overcrest podcast? The the one and only. Have you forgotten about oh, us already? I feel honored <laughs> you would call me. I've got a list of cars here, and one of the cars on my list, I'm not going to tell you where it is because it'll probably, I don't want to, I don't want to taint the waters, let's say, but you on, this, <laughs> on the list is an E34 M5, and I can think of nobody better to tell everyone why that car is on the list than you well that's because it's fantastic and i owned one and i miss it awesome why is this car so good why is it important well so hang on we should preface this that why is it important to me and why is it important to everyone else it's probably different let's I know let's say I'm let's try and go to the why it's important to everyone else okay although it's why probably it? the same reason that it's important to you but let's try and talk to the general public about it the general public, which is totally the Overcast podcast listener. Uh, so, <laughs> so the general public, it was, I mean, its biggest claim to fame is, is, is the last hand-built M car, like, like full stop. So what, did they take these cars off the assembly line and then put the motors in and everything separate or how, what do you mean by yeah, hand-built? So, yep. So, so basically the bodies were built on the line, right? And then they were shipped over to the BMW M division or whatever you want to call it. And like a totally different building, all that stuff. And I, 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 I've seen pictures of it. And basically, the drive line was was put in, so the engine was installed, and all of that stuff was done. The the engines were hand built, and then the actual drive, uh, the engine was then put in the car. Rumor has it, and I and I, I definitely would never say this, but rumor has it that a you can tell who built the engine by by the way the engine operated like drove and all that like they each have their own characteristics of how people built them i don't okay. know if that's true and the other rumor you'd was have to be a pretty discerning connoisseur to be able to pick that out right and the other rumor was that if you pulled the bmw emblem off your hood you're like the original one i'm sure after like they i mean this is so old at this point right right the original emblem there was a piece of paper under with the guy's name that built the engine, kind of like BMW, BMW, Mercedes has AMGs have the plaque with the guy that built it. Right. Rumor was there was a piece of paper under the emblem. Now I don't know if either of those are true. They're they're, they're old, you know, tales. Right. Um, but that's cool. So the engine itself, though, not only was it hand built, the engine is a descendant 
of the S38 that was in the M1 supercar that used to race. And that uh, is one of the most special parts about this car is that it, it is where one it came of the from. Parts of that car, yes. That I mean, it is. It has a rate. It is a race car engine to the point where legitimately it is unhappy when it is cold, like that. Like when the engine's cold starts, and it is also unhappy, very unhappy, up below mm, three to thirty-two hundred RPM. It just isn't happy. It does not like puttering around traffic. It does not like cruising at low RPMs. It likes to sing. It likes to be revved out. So this is why you like the car so much. It's basically the engine version of you. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yes. So, well, so so that was a one. Of the, I mean, that hang on. It, it, it's a race car, and that appealed to me, right? It had four doors. My wife was saying I couldn't get a 911 because I didn't have four doors and all this other stuff. We didn't have kids. But what also appealed to me was no one in the world knows what this car is. You have to be a true enthusiast because it's super sleeper. There's two badges. And if you know the wheels you're looking for, and you knew the the the, the lifts, the 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 different two tone paint and all that. But otherwise, now what? Wait, wait, wait. What's up with the wheels, right? Because they're very, very unique. Yeah. So the first year, you so this only car came for, to the U.S. for three years. This is in Europe for more years than this. But the U.S. car had a three six. European car ended up getting a three eight at the end of its life. By the way, which uh, I know some people that had that imported. And this is an inline six, everybody. That's it's a big. It is an inline six. It's a big inline six. Um, I know a couple of people that have imported wagons. And I know one personally. And what happens is those are all three eights. They're like 94s, 95s. And the three eights are actually a three six that are bored. So they start life as a three six and then they get bored out. Right. And they have thinner sidewalls in their block. So what happens is, is the S38 itself and the three six, the basic form is a very stout engine because it was built for racing. So usually they go to 220 ish before a rebuild is necessary. If you maintain them properly. Mine was a bulletproof. The three eights are not because they have a thinner sidewall on their block. Sure. Most of them seem to blow up around 120K need to rebuild. And that is what happened to my friend with a wagon. So three eights sound better because they have a little more power. But the reality is that they're not as stout. And what do they make for power generally? So the three six is about mm, 306, 315 horsepower at the crank and torque is 280, 290, something like that. So when um, we're talking early 90s, those are huge numbers. Huge. It, so, so when it came out, uh, it was 016, about six seconds flat. It was a six second car. And it also was the fastest production stand in the world at the time. When well, that was out. the same thing with the E34 too, right? When it came, or I'm sorry, the, the E28. Yes, yes, sorry. Yes, yes, correct. Which is also an S38 with, with less power. Right. And then um, was the was the E39 M5 also the fastest sedan ever at the time? Is that just something yeah, that they tried to do with this car, do you think? I actually don't know the answer to that. And and here's the reality. When I was shopping for these, I was looking at E28s, E34s, and E39s. And I drove all of them. And while I love all three and appreciate all three, at the point in my life when I was buying this, I purposely chose the E34 and decided it was my goalie locks. E39 was too modern, had stability control, had traction control, had airbags, had infotainment system, and all this crap that I was like, I don't want this. Yep. I don't want it. And it was heavier. That also was built on the production line, and they had to make compromises because of that. And they had to be compromises because it was a production 5 series. The suspension is compromised. Well, now, now you don't have, I don't have to explain why that car is not on my list now, because you just did it for me. It's a fast car. It's an amazing car, but it was compromised and had to be compromised because it was a production car. The E34 M5 was low volume. Like, 13, 1200 of those E34s came to US ever. Three years. Most of them were black. Uh, you could only, uh, let's see what else. Uh, most interiors are black or dove gray. 
Mine was dubbed gray. Um, but look, here's the thing. You drive by a cop and no one knows what this car is. It looks like an old Land 5 series. It's so, so nondescript. And I love that. I don't like attention. But I'm in a press car and it's a Bentley. It's fun for like an hour. Right. And then, and then, I, then people are spitting I, on your car and giving you the look. I like, who is this guy? Like, I'm not that guy with attention. I do not appreciate that attention. I buy things and I want them for me, not everyone else. Sure. Well, I think that covers the E34, man. I appreciate you. I uh, appreciate you calling in. I ha- I'm happy to always call in, Chris. All right. You take care of yourself. Talk to you, buddy. Bye. All right. Bye. So one thing that's been kind of mentioned again in this podcast earlier was the word bulletproof. Right. When was the last motor that was built? In the, when was a motor that was built in the last 20 years? That's a performance <laughs> engine yeah, that, that people have said bulletproof. it's bulletproof. You I, just don't hear it. When have you heard of a, a race car engine that essentially is made to run on individual throttle bodies? It's pretty high right. strung. It revs. I didn't realize this thing was the same engine out of the M1. It is. Well, that is cool. It's related. It's I would not say of course, it's, yeah. but it's the same architecture. Yeah, you, it's not measured in hours. <laughs> it's right. measured in miles. All right, moving on. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about our sponsor, Petrobox? That's right. So Petrobox, if you've been uh, living under a rock, Petrobox is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiasts. Each and every month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, and they deliver it right there to your doorstep. And every single month, they actually put you in a drawing, every single subscriber, to win a set of rotiform wheels, which I think is really cool. Now, there's actually two levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check those guys out at mypetrobox.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-R-O-L-B-O-X.com. And use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. It makes a great gift, or if you want one yourself, that's cool too. All right, so number one on the however many there are list. Of the best cars of the 90s, most notable cars. I, this is going to be very controversial. Oh, jeez. So what brand have you not heard on this list? Porsche. Porsche. You've not heard Porsche at all on this list. Uh-huh. Number one uh-huh. on my list of best 90s cars. I know what it's going to be. It is the Porsche Boxster. Yep. And I know what you're thinking. No, you don't. I'm talking to the audience. Okay. I know what you're <laughs> thinking. Well, we had... Two versions of the 911s in the 90s, right? We had the yeah. 993, and then we had the 996. Yeah. 996, fine car. 993 wasn't enough to save Porsche. True. Sales well, is too damn expensive. It was very expensive, and it would barely fit on this list because they were 75000 80000 minimum right. at the time. And they're extremely complicated cars built on a platform that at that point was... 30 years old. Oh, yeah. Essentially. Yep. And, you know, they tried switching away, going with the 944 chassis, trying to, like, get away from the 911, and that didn't work. So then they continued to evolve the 911 because they didn't have any money to to do anything else. And they finally went, okay, what are we going to do? And that's where Toyota came in. Exactly. So, hence the Boxster on this list because it saved Porsche from its ultimate demise and gave them a foundation to build every car that you see today. So I have, I made a phone call. Okay. I have on the line here, Vu Gwen, who is the, uh, he's in charge of the PCA club. He's the executive, oh, okay. executive director of Porsche 
Club North America. He has a Boxster, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the Boxster and why it's important. We're here with Vu Gwen. He's going to tell us a little bit about the Boxster. Um, before we do that, why don't you tell us uh, who you are and what your title is over there at PCA? Sure. I'm PCA's executive director, and I've been so for the past 15 years. So you have a Boxster, right? I do. I have a 1999 box. Okay, so this is right up your alley then. Now, a lot of people might think it's strange that I would put this on the list instead of a 911, but there's a reason for that, and the reason is that this car is incredibly significant for Porsche. Why is that? Absolutely. You know, back in the you know late 80s, uh, more more so the the early 90s, as, as times were were kind of tough for Porsche and sort of the, the the evolution of the 911 and going into the 928 you you know the, the company really wasn't sure of i guess the, the the future and 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 the sales numbers unfortunately kind of reflected that and so they were looking at you know water cooled technology they were looking at a car that was more of a, the essence of like the 550 spider and with all of that you know the Back to 1990, I believe 96, late 96, as a 97 model, they came out with this Boxster and a mid engine, two door drop top that was not, you know, a, a powerful car, but a fun to drive. Car. Do we know who conceived this I, idea? Who's like, okay, we're going to make the Boxster. This is what we're going to do. Is there any one person that you can narrow this down to? Um, You know, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say where I don't know where the specific I'm sure it was by committee a little was, bit. Uh, I, I, the, what the, I don't know where exactly the idea was born. There's people out there that are definitely more well versed in it than I, but I, I do I do feel lucky that um, I do know the designer Grant Larson very well, which was tied to the Boxster project. So, what was his thoughts on on the Boxster in general when he went to design the car? Was there anything that he said I'm going to make it like this? Obviously, you said he took uh, must have taken inspiration from the 550. Yeah, you know, we've we've talked about his designs and you know there there were a lot of parameters. I mean, if you can just think back to the the situation or the environment that Porsche was in, it's not like he he or the company had the ability to have a blank check to be able to design this new vehicle. Right. So they're 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 talking about redesigning at the time redesigning the 911, introducing this model, obviously by looking at the two cars, you're seeing a lot of parts and fenders and things that are shared across the platforms. So I'm sure there was, you know, Grant's initial design or the, or the design concept that was introduced at the auto show had a very unique look. And the final product, like oftentimes, is not exactly the same as a prototype, but it was it, it was still fairly close. But like I said, I, I don't think they had you know, a blank check to just kind of recreate everything and, and come up with com something without any kind of limitations. So the design and the sharing of platforms and parts probably played a big role in all well, that. Because before that, if you look at like the 924, the 968 and the 911, nothing really bolted into anything else. And it wasn't, Correct. it wasn't modular at all. So the Porsche really, or the Boxster really modernized the Porsche platform entirely. Yeah, absolutely, and and it comes down to also, you know, the the Kaizen, um, you know, way of producing vehicles and bringing more efficiency 
um, into the way that these these cars were going to be built. That was also something new for Porsche. Right. So how bad were things before the Boxster came out? When we're looking at the tail end of the 993, how bad was it really? Oh, man, I've I've I, 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 I was not shopping for Porsches during that time. But sales numbers were just, uh, you know, a small fraction of what Porsche moves in, in today's market. And, um, yeah, it, it, times were tough. I, again, this is all stuff that I've heard. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly young. I've, I've been around Porsches for a while. But, you know, I didn't live through, um, you know, that market. But uh, I know times were tough. Was there a backlash when the Boxster came out? You know, Porsche people are loyal, right? Sometimes loyal to a fault and new things. Uh, there are some that, you know, embrace it. Um, but I think a lot of times people are quite reserved. Uh, Porsche owners are reserved and, and anything that's new that's coming out, they're going to reserve their um, appreciation or adulation of the vehicle until it proves itself. Right. So, uh, much like when the Cayenne was introduced, much like when the Panamera was introduced, the Boxster was, it was a departure from a 911. It was more of a, an economy vehicle. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say, it, I don't think the car was hated upon, but it certainly was not the traditional 911. And that's probably the biggest sort of shadow that, is cast over the Boxster. Right. Do you think it, you think it's fair or do you think it's an unfair representation? Cause obviously you drive one, you're the, you know, you're in charge of all this stuff. So you could pretty much drive anything you want at any given time, but this is what you choose to drive. So do you think that is unfair to say? Um, you know, it's, it, it's like, it's like choosing your favorite kid, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think in the back of most parents' mind, they probably do have a favorite kid, but 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 each kid or, or each tool, so to speak, that you might have has a serves a specific function or, you know, uh, you, and they each have a personality. Right. 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 So so if you're, you 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 like the, the way a rear engine car handles on the track, it's a little bit more a little bit tougher to handle, a little bit more strategic on how you move that car around the track and and how it reacts when when the back comes out. Um, you know, when, when you're coming out of corners and stuff and, and you drive a certain way, but you know, I, what I will tell you, and, and, and it's, and it's pure physics, you know, a mid engine car, um, is inherently just more stable. Right. And so, so that, that a Boxster, I find, um, it's so, so easy to drive that car closer to like a performance level without having, fears of you know the the, the rear engine you know sure. rear engine 911 hanging out i mean today's technology kind of addresses all of these you know little characteristics of, of that that might bite you so to speak that in the 70s and 80s you didn't have all these smart computers kind of reacting before you could so um you know it, i find it really easy to drive the, the mid-engine platforms to a higher level and be more comfortable with it. But when I drive my rear engine car, you know, my 996, you know, on the track, there is just the satisfaction of knowing that you're able to kind of tame this wild horse. Oh, for sure. And, and, and it does do some really special things if you do it right. Um, 
So yeah, it's just you know they they all have their unique personalities, and, and let's it's kind of like dating the girl crazy. that might dump you at any time versus dating the safe girl that you yeah. know is going to go out to dinner yeah. with you when you call. You, you could put it that way, <laughs> and just you know, you know the, the price point was clearly different as well. You know, you could get into a a boxster for ten to fifteen thousand dollars less than the nine eleven, right. and that's a big difference for people. And I, I that think sounds insignificant like now, but in the nineties, we're talking about nineties dollars. That was a big yeah, deal back then. Yeah, and, and and even today, as as the club moves forward, and as as these boxsters are, we're finding out that these boxsters are you know in six you know uh, six digit mileage and coming available for younger folks to get into them. Um, you know, and now you're finding younger generations instead of going out and buying let's say uh, a civic or something like that they can buy a boxster if they buy it right they're going to have an amazing car to have fun with and uh, they can do you know it opens the doors to a lot of things because a boxster costs what now they're ten thousand dollars or you know six to ten thousand dollars you can get a boxster and if you like working on them like i do they're even you can really get a good deal I bought my 99 for $5,000, $5,000. And yes, you know, you have to be smart, be careful. I always tell these people that, you know, are finding these sub $10,000 boxsters or sub $20,000 911s. Like if you, if you shop right, you can land some great deals, but you have to be careful because there are some cars out there because these cars were used as daily drivers. They were left outside and, all this stuff. And, and, and if you get sort of, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed about the fact that you're buying a Porsche <laughs> and you don't look, look at the car carefully and objectively, you can inherit someone's nightmare. And, and that's what, you know, as a club, what we try to do is we want to educate people. Sure. We have a series of videos on YouTube where, you know, it teaches you how to do, you know, uh, a pre-purchase inspection, what to look for in certain uh, models, because if you buy the right one, you're going to be fine. But if you buy the wrong one, you're going to be sour on it. And you're not going to be just sour on that car. You're going to be sour on the fact that here's your dream car. You bought it. And then you're just going to, you go through your nightmare and then you're just going to tell everybody that the whole brand, is a bad thing. And right. that's what that's what I want to try or that's what PCA tries to make sure. Well, we should have had this conversation before I bought the 200,000 mile uh, $8,000 996 that I bought and <laughs> that just like <laughs> destroyed my whole entire life. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I yeah, yeah, <laughs> buying it buying it right is so important. And sometimes sometimes you can find a bargain basement deal like I did on my Boxer, but you have to make sure you know going into it what you have to do to make sure that it's a reliable car and you know that you you can enjoy it without uh, fear so to speak right i always thought that they should have just called the thing the 914 i just i always thought that they should have just put that label on there cuz if you think about it that's kind of what it was Although I do see that the new 914, they want to do some electric thing. I, well, I saw that, something that about that. Well, uh, that was our editor, Rob Sass. And we were, you know, we kind of uh, sit around at PCA thinking about crazy ideas. And that that was one that he, he came up with because we've seen such amazing uh, things come out of uh, Stuttgart in terms of the Taycan. But he said, what if, you know, we, we do this what if a lot, right? And then one of his what if is, and he's a huge 914 fan. He's like, man, what if there was like an entry level 914? that had a electric powertrain that was going to be way more than any 914 used to have, wouldn't that be a fun car? 
and uh, something that fit in between yeah. Audi and Porsche pricing, just or like Taycan, Taycan pricing, something exactly. in the middle there. Exactly. Yeah. I hope that this will concrete in people's mind to maybe drop the Pariah Boxster thing. I think they're great cars, and everybody should be extremely happy that that car saved Porsche. And of course, it's a great car as well. Yeah, and, and if anyone is you know hesitant, you know, there's so many examples. Uh, out there, especially if you reach out to your local PCA group, there's boxers that you can, you know, get sure. members, you know, opinions, go for a drive. Obviously, I would let anybody drive my boxer. And until you drive it, you should kind of reserve your comments until you really have the data firsthand. <laughs> I think that people fear driving them because they don't want to like it. And that's, and my, I'm guilty of this too, because I haven't driven a Miata yet. Yeah, I drove like a new one, but I haven't driven the old one. And I kind of make fun of them on the podcast quite a bit. But I feel like maybe if I drive one, I'll like it. So I've kind of avoided it a little well, bit. Well, that's kind of like the whole moped thing, right? Everybody smiles and has fun on a moped, but they never Absolutely. really want to admit that they want to ride a moped. But, yep. you know, the, the, the Boxster, like I said, it's it, in numbers. Sometimes people, you know, they you know they they don't they don't embrace it because it's you know it's only two only 210 horsepower and it this right. that, and the other but the combination is right the car just feels it's a lot of fun and like a like a miata the, the balance the the power um how tossable it is and and believe it or not because it's you know a, a 97 to 2004 or you know era car it's very easy to work on like you know suspension swaps brake swaps it's right air conditioning is very modern so, yeah, it's definitely something worth checking out if you've never driven one firsthand. And if people want to learn more about the Boxster and stuff like that, they can go to your guys' YouTube channel and check it out, I imagine. Yeah, they can go to our YouTube channel. They can go to PCA.org, and we have some buyer's guides in there, and they can read through all that. All right. Sounds good, man. I really appreciate you calling in, and uh, we'll, see you. we'll see you and talk to you again some other see time. See you on the road. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. So... So the Boxster, the Boxster, the I, I moped think... of the Porsche world. <laughs> that is what I took away from that conversation. No, no, no. I think he makes a good All right. point. So, yes, I understand the significance of the Boxster in the Porsche realm. However, I do not agree that this is the number one most influential car of the 90s. What, what is? Okay, well, right off the bat in your own list, the FD RX-7 is so much better in every way. A better car, yes. Yeah. But not more influential in any way. It didn't uh, It didn't shake up anything. It didn't move anything. In fact, it actually stopped being made because it couldn't become a big enough influence. So true. No. So no. In that vein, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what else is on this list? I mean, most of the cars on this list I would rather drive than a Boxster. Yeah. But this car is really, really, really important. I think it made a huge waves, and it shows how one car can absolutely turn around in an entire company. True. And on that note, I will let you guys uh, send us an email or send us a message. Let us know if you agree with us or not. And make sure you stop over at patreon.com slash overcrest. Join up. We have new guys joining on every day. Yes. We're going to have a Patreon exclusive for you, I think, next week or the yes, week after. Yes, we will. Um, just adding another one of the list. Plus, you have access to our exclusive voicemail. If you'd like to call us and leave us a message and get on the show, that is your way to do it. On that note, we will see you guys on Monday. Take care. Bye-bye. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes. The flags go up. Churning and burning. They yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Fuel burning fast on an empty tank. 
Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns Their prowess is potent and secretly stern As they speed through the finish, the flags go down The fans get up and they get out of town The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving